You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're in a little mini-series on Genesis, asking what on earth is this about? It's a controversial chapter, or three chapters, because people often pit it against science and go, one is true, they can't both be true, Uh, but let's dig in to Genesis chapter 3 together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Ah, you won't die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows actually when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him and you'll know good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. Not too sure who he's blaming there. (laughs) It's them. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, It's the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What on earth is going on? Talking snakes, trees of life, people suddenly realizing they're naked. What on earth is going on? These chapters, Genesis 1 through 3, are often pointed at as how absurd the Bible is, that this can't be real. You're either scientific or biblicist. So, of course, what we've been looking at the last few days is this either or is actually not necessarily as simple as it sounds because what you're asking is, well, what does the Bible mean to say? What is God saying through these passages? And is it scientific or is it something else? The Bible is God's inspired word, speaking through humans his truth. And if we are to understand his truth through any passage of the Bible, we have to ask ourselves three questions. The first is this, what is the author's meaning? Secondly, what type of literature is it? And thirdly, what's the historical context? Let's go through these. So what does the author mean this to say? So God is speaking to an author, inspiring an author to write something. And the meaning, therefore, is in 
the inspired mind of the author. You can't just put your meaning onto anything. You have to go, well, what did they mean? When someone writes you a letter, you have to listen to what they're trying to tell you. You can't dishonor them by going, "Eh, I think what you really meant was this. You have to honor what the author is meaning. In order to find out what the author is meaning, you have to understand, well, what is the literature this person is writing? So if I'm writing a poem, then you, in order to understand what I'm trying to tell you, you have to read it like a poem. Or if it's chronological history, that's what I'm trying to tell you. And then finally, you have to understand the author's historical and cultural context. All that means is, Certain words change meaning over time, don't they? We even know today that words we used 30 years ago slightly mean something different today. And therefore, to understand an ancient document, any ancient document, you have to understand what these words meant to the author at that time. You can't just go, well, it means this today, therefore it meant that then. We know language doesn't work that way. And so when you apply these three golden rules to any passage of the Bible, and by the way, these golden rules have been around for 2,000 years. These are just the fundamental, faithful way of interpreting the Bible. Whenever someone misinterprets the Bible, they've done one of these wrong. And when you, when you apply these three rules to Genesis 1 and 3, most scholars come to the conclusion that this isn't meant to be a scientific narrative that this is actually, there's disagreement, and I honor that disagreement, but I say to people, look, you may have been told it's either this or nothing, but actually there's real disagreement around what is going on in these chapters by scholars who uphold the faithfulness of Scripture. The consensus, certainly around Genesis 1, the majority consensus is it's nothing to do with scientific narrative as we would know it today. It's more a theological poem telling us the who and the why behind creation, not the how and when. And that is equally valid for Genesis 2 and 3. John Walton at Wheaton College is one of the leading scholars here on actually even Genesis 2 and 3 has a narrative historical flavor to it. And much of it might be history in the sense of the core core ideas, but much of it is also using figurative imagery to convey truth. And some think it may be more like a parable that Jesus told. It's truth through story. So there's disagreement about exactly what's going on in Genesis 2 and 3. The majority feel it's historical in some sense, but also figurative in other sense, as is very typical of ancient Near East writings. But wherever you stand, everyone agrees that Genesis 2 and 3, like Genesis 1, the main focus of these passages are not the how and the when, but the who and the why. We can argue in the pub forever about exactly what kind of genre it is, and we have to agree to disagree. But what we all agree on is the fundamental truths that God is communicating through these passages around the who and the why, the big fundamental questions of our human existence. And Genesis 3 particularly answers this important question. Why is the world so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? Why is humanity messed up? Why are you messed up? Why am I messed up? 
Because there's a universal agreement that something has gone wrong. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's good creation. In fact, he sits back and says, this is really good. There is community, there's relationship with God, there is fruitfulness, there is joy, there is all these things that we idealize society to be. And we look at that and no wonder God said, this is very good. And yet when we wake up in Los Angeles in 2023, we go, this ain't that. Your experience will be different to others around you, but we all go, this ain't that. Either because it's been tragically made aware to you through death and suffering and pain that this world is not very good. Or you see it all around you. We live in a mixed bag of we see great joy and goodness because this world is created in the image of God, but it's been radically warped because we also see great evil and suffering in the world. And the question that we all have is, how did it get to here? If God did that in Genesis 1, what went wrong? How did we end up where we are? This is what Genesis 3 is teaching us. It's God's revelation of why we are in the mess that we are today. What Genesis 3 does, it gives us in seed form God's explanation of suffering and evil that we then see worked through all the narrative of the Bible and affirmed by Jesus. There's one consistent line all the way from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the Bible and then all the way through, through history of this is the issue. And we see it first in Genesis 3. But I'm going to summarize it for you on the screen in a minute because this is God's explanation for evil that Jesus affirms. And it's actually a bit more complex than just one thing. In fact, it's three things. It's what Jesus calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. That there is three problems going on in humanity. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and they all actually work together somehow. First of all, the devil, which we'll come on to see in a minute, is the image of the snake in Genesis 3. That the devil is there as a created being by God, somehow, for some reason, in rebellion against God, seeking to bring lies into our hearts to lead us away from the good things of God. This then works with our own desires. We're tempted by these ideas because they, they seem good to us. And our desires are then outworked in a way against God. And then these sins, doing things in our own strength away from God, thirdly, are then cheered on and encouraged by the world, by the culture. We see this all the way through Scripture, that when you think of what's wrong with the world, you see these three things at interplay. Which is why we say, oh, the devil made me do it. Well, that's more complex than that. Or we can never say, man, just people do evil things. Sometimes there's more than just our own decisions going on for evil. And then we can't avoid the fact that the world, the system, the culture also has an effect on individuals. These all three things interplay. And we see them interplay right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. In verse 
one, it begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other one animals. And he said to the woman, now straight away pause, we're thinking, I'm thinking at least, okay, so let's say this is an image of an evil one, an evil created being. But where did that come from? Where did this evil thing come from? And this is where we enter into the glorious tension of mystery. We don't know. That actually at times we have to go, this is all God has revealed to us at this stage. That we're coming into the story of humanity in Genesis chapter one, not at the beginning. That some things have already happened and we're just joining the story where there is this thing called a spiritual enemy who is at odds with God. There's clues in the Bible, maybe about the history before this history, but it's a bit sketchy to try and build a whole concrete theology on. It's kind of like when you watch Star Wars, the original, right? You go into the movie theater, I think I was like 10 when I went in to see the first Star Wars, and you sit there, and you don't start at the beginning. It's like, episode four. You go, what? Where's episodes one through three? And then we pretend they were never made, right? <laughs> but you, we are watching this episode four, and it's, you're joining a story. And then you see Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, and they're going at it. And you get enough history to know what's going on, but you don't know the full thing. And that's kind of what we have here in Genesis chapter one. We join it at episode four, where there's a spiritual enemy that is against the things of God and against humanity. And this spiritual enemy, Jesus recognizes as well as Satan, as there are spiritual forces. And the first thing we see that this spiritual force is not some kind of hooved, hooded, like red with horns, Lucifer type, HBO. All we hear is this snake is crafty. Crafty. Smart. Intelligent. Able to twist in order to get his own way. And what we see here immediately, he comes not with bluster, not with trying to scare Adam and Eve, but with deceptive lies. Ideas, lies to turn them away from God's good design. He begins with a lie about God's commands. He says, look, did God really say? I know God said, you know, do these things and it will go well with you. Don't do things and it won't go well with you. But did he really say that? How often do we all look at the ethics of Jesus and go, did he really say that? I'm sure in the Greek it didn't mean that. We just, the lies of, "Mm, did he really? And then secondly, he brings lies about God's love. It's like God has said no to eating of that tree. And the enemy comes in and goes, it's not very loving of him. It's like, look how good it looks. And You're going to gain wisdom by doing that. Why would God say no to that? Sounds like he's not very nice. Sounds like he's a spoil sport. Sounds like he doesn't have the best for you. Sounds like these are arbitrary rules. But why would he say no to that? 
And thirdly, he questions the very nature of good and evil itself. It's like, surely you can make up what is really right and wrong. I mean, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. And like, you'll then be able to determine yourself what is right and wrong. Don't you want to be under someone, uh, un, out from under someone's authority? What about you just being you? What about you making up life as it goes along and throwing off this oppression of some kind of creator with a design? Genesis chapter 3, Los Angeles 2023. It's the same all the way through. That the enemy comes in to God's good creation, the good designer, the good creator, who's wired things up for fruitful living, who looked at you and me and said, oh my word, this is going to be great. If you follow the way I've made the world, if you follow the design, you follow the kind of the, the warp and woof of how I've made things, it's going to be amazing. But don't go against it, because it will surely lead to death. But that very guidance of a loving God is questioned. And the tactic is to make ourselves gods, to determine our own right and wrong, and reject the God of creation. It's why Ignatius of Loyola said, sin in of itself is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It's I gotta take control of my life. I don't trust God. I don't trust his ways will be for my good. The challenge is these lies only get traction because they land on our disordered desires. See, a lie that doesn't actually appeal to you, you could easily reject. But the devil's lies are crafty. He comes to Eve and says, you want wisdom, right? You want good food, right? Isn't this what God wants? You want to be happy, right? This is what God wants for you. These are the desires God gave you. Well, I've got a way that you can be fulfilled in a different way than God. In fact, you can be fulfilled in all of these desires without even consulting God. That's why it says in verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. They landed on her desires. That things that God says, hey, that's out of bounds because that will not be good for you. That is forbidden, not because it's sin. It's sin because it's bad for you. And that's why it's forbidden. This will not go well with you. But it can look on the outside like some things will go well with you. There are lots of things in life that look good on the outside, but you know are not good for you. And yet we are deceived. And then we go on and realize that it's not just the deceptive ideas land on disordered desires, but then we see that Eve then ate the apple and gave it to her husband, Adam, and we see then that other seed of the problem, which is we can actually start to encourage others that together herd mentality means how we can encourage each other 
to break away from God, to define good and evil by ourselves. This isn't saying that Eve is worse than Adam. They both sinned, they both looked at this, but Eve seems to be tempted by the devil and Adam seems to have caved in and be tempted by the world around him. Just, you know what, I'll go with the flow. The world, the flesh and the devil creep into the garden and wreak havoc with the first humanity and wreak havoc today. God's very clear, if you reject my design and start to operate this world according to your own values, it will go wrong. It will just go wrong. The language of that is death. It will slowly die. It won't bring life, it will slowly die. That the intricacy of this creation, the beauty of how it's all wired together, if you don't follow my instructions, it will go wrong. It will surely die, and immediately we see the breakdown of the world around Adam and Eve. First of all, they break their relationship with God. There's a distance between humanity and God, because first and foremost, disobeying and coming out from under authority and rebelling against authority breaks that relationship. You know this as well as I do. That if someone says, please don't do that, and you go, I'm doing it there's a breakdown. I remember growing up and having this breakdown with my own father at one point because for a few years, from 1980, 78 to 82, the Jones family lived in St. Louis, Missouri. We moved from England, lived in St. Louis, what I call the ET years, right? It was, we got BMX bikes, ET, subdivisions, you never, no cell phones, the, the, the rule was you could just come home after dark and that was great. So we were just loving life. And all my friends discovered this thing, I discovered this thing, had never had it in England, something called TPing. Ever TPed? <laughs> come on, hands up, who's TPed a house? Who's never TPed? Okay, all right, summer socials, here we go. <laughs> um, so this TP, to TP a house, those don't know, is as, as young teenagers, I think we were like 10 or 11, you basically go down and you get lots of toilet paper and big cans of shaving cream and you get them in the backpack, sneak out in the middle of the night, you all meet up somewhere and then you choose a house and normally it wasn't by random. It was more normally, there's a reason. You'd choose a house and then you'd, in the middle of the night, throw toilet paper all through the trees, you'd climb up, why on toilet paper everywhere, shaving cream all over the grass, all that kind of stuff. And then in the morning, hopefully a good dew would set, settle in, and you see these poor kind of people then for the next week trying to get toilet paper out of their garden, out of their yard. It was amazing. <laughs> but we were experts at teepeeing. We were doing it nonstop. And so, to such an extent, the neighborhood got together and said, we've got to find out who these people are, who are TPing all the homes. So I remember my dad coming to me and said, now, son, it's not you, is it? I go, me. <laughs> Almost like, how could you think it was me? I was a good kid. And uh, so you went, no, of course it's not. Okay, well, you know, no one should do this. This is really bad because, you know, this is really disruptive, blah, blah, blah. And he just said to me, do not ever do this. This is bad. Do not do this. I go, of course, I'll never do it. That night. <laughs> at 2 a.m. in the morning. 
<laughs> I get my backpack full of toilet paper and shaving cream. <laughs> Shimmy down the drain, get on my little BMX bike, cycle, meet up with my buddies, and then we're cycling down, down the subdivision in the little floodlight streets, and then turn a corner, and there they are. All the dads of the neighborhood. <laughs> with flashlights waiting for us. And we all screech to a halt. And then we realize, I'm dead. <laughs> I now will surely die. I remember, but here's the thing. I knew that I was sinning against the neighbors, right? But that wasn't the main person I was sinning against. It was my dad. And I knew I'd actually caused offense to him. That I had listened to his advice, listened to his authority, agreed and gone, yes, and I'd absolutely, willingly rejected it and therefore rejected him. And I could sense the disappointment. I could sense the break of like, we eyeballed each other and I blatantly disobeyed. There was an affront to him. And sin is fundamentally and foundationally and firstly an offense to your creator. There's a myth going around that God is just happy with whatever we do. Even if it's hurting others and hurting ourselves. And yet actually we see in Jesus, he gets angry at those who hurt others. And I'm in that camp. I don't know about you. And I sometimes, and every time I go outside of his design, I'm sinning against him. And there's a breakdown of relationship. You see with Adam and Eve, they hide from God. They know, they can sense it. Oh my word, we have totally hurt God and rejected him. This is not neutral. I know what I'm doing. I know what he wants me to do. And I'm doing the opposite. That has consequences in my relationship with him. Not only with God, but relationship with one another. You see, what the enemies come in, our disordered desires, are fundamentally making each one of us our own gods to determine right and wrong by ourselves. Well, imagine a world where we each get to decide what is right and wrong. Carnage. A breakdown of relationship. Not only in microwaves, but also macroways across societies, across nations. Suddenly there's no overarching guiding principles of life designed for human flourishing, but we're each making it up as we go along. And by the time Genesis 3 moves to 4, moves to 5, all the way through to Genesis 11, we've seen the disintegration of friendship, family, society, and nations. We make ourselves gods, and we destroy the goodness of what God has done. Deceptive ideas playing to disordered desires normalized in a sinful society. The question at the end of chapter three is, is there any hope? Is there any way to unwind this? Or is that now it? And that could be it. That could be the end of the story. Episode chapter, episode four, we messed up. Of our own will. 
Today, we mess up. Of our own. We go outside of God's design because we want to. And that could be the end of the story. Probably in that story is, so humanity tried to make the best of it. We tried to get better science, better technology, better education, better school systems, better healthcare. And in fact, at times, society has felt that way. If you read history of the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, that was a great hope. The the Enlightenment and the the age of the technical and um, industrial revolution. Oh, we've got this. We can now solve the world's problems with advances in technology and healthcare. And there's great optimism until two world wars, Great Depression, and the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. The jury has come in and humanity can't fix itself. Don't get me wrong. There are good things we can do to alleviate injustice and pain. Science is good. Medicine is great. Education is good. Eradication of poverty, wherever we see it, is noble. But here's the thing. Human history has shown us that these alleviate symptoms. They don't don't cure the root problem. Is there any hope? The hope in Genesis 3 isn't fixed on humanity being better. Isn't fixed on God saying, you know what, you've messed up, try harder. Isn't fixed by going, you know what, try again. The chaos and the pain of chapter 3 can only be unwound, not by humans being better, but by an intervention from a rejected God to rescuing those who rejected him. We see this in verse 8. Straight away, the one we rejected, he's the one shouting, where are you? Where are you? I don't know about you, but if someone rejects me, if someone pushes me away, I'm probably not the first to respond, hey, can we hang out? But this is how much God loves his creation, that even when they've rejected him and brutally destroyed the goodness of creation, he initiates the first move, I'm coming to find you. And coming to find them isn't to shame them and to tell them off and to guilt them. Look what you have done. In verse 15, he turns to the serpent and he says, this is what I am going to do to fix this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He, someone's going to come from the offspring of Eve, And this person won't succumb to the the deceptive lies. This person won't succumb to disordered desires. This person won't succumb to peer pressure to do the wrong thing. He won't be crushed like all the rest of us. Somehow he's going to crush his head. And he's going to get struck in the process. 
this prophetic declaration that God says there's going to come a son. There's going to come a son. There's going to come a son who one day will deal with this. He's going to crush the enemy and restore what's been lost. And so that promise hangs over the Old Testament. People keep thinking, is it going to be David? And David is crushed by his own sin. Is it going to be Solomon? Nope, Solomon is crushed by his own sin. Again and again, every human follows the same pattern of Adam and Eve. Is there ever going to be someone who isn't going to be crushed but will crush the serpent's head? Someone who is perfect, someone who is powerful, someone with authority to represent humanity. And I wonder what it was like. I wish I would have been there. Well, eventually, in the throne room of heaven, the father turns to the son and says, it's time. It's time. I promised this a long time ago. But it's time. It's time to rescue humanity from their own rebellion. It's time to crush the one who keeps on crushing them. It's time to pay the price to forgive them, to bring them home. Jesus, it's time. Suit up. Suit up. Put on flesh. Become one of them. That you can represent them that you can die the death that they deserve, that you can actually take the hits on their behalf. You can actually defeat the devil in the wilderness that they couldn't defeat. That every battle they lost, you're going to win. And all the battles they lost, you're going to pay for. Angels, get ready. Get ready to announce the good news. Let's start with some shepherds that today in the town of Bethlehem, a savior has been born. And then throughout his life, this son of heaven and son of Eve has one thing in his mind. I'm here to overcome the evil one. I've come to pay the price of humanity's rebellion. And so whenever he sees the devil wreaking havoc, he casts them out. That's what I've come to do. Whenever he sees the havoc of sickness and evil, injustice and racism, he unwinds it and pushes it back. This is why I've come. And when he realizes and when he knows he can't just do this for those around him, he wants to do it for all of humanity. He says, I'm off to Jerusalem. Don't stop me. For this reason I came, to lay down my life, to go to that cross, to take every sin, every devil, and nail it to the cross. And just when the devil thinks he's defeated me with death, I'm going to give him about 48 hours before he realizes it was death that's been defeated. And he rises from the grave to fulfill the promise 
he will crush the head. And so he gathers his disciples and says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. Let's bring goodness back to this world. Let's unwind injustice because the root cause has been fixed. Let's unwind sickness because the root cause has been crucified. Let's unwind despair. Let's unwind darkness. Let's unwind all these things. Go! We've got a job to do. Well, the enemy meant for evil, Jesus now reverses for good. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.